This is Ali Henney, and you're listening to Combing the Roots, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian collective. On this episode, I'm going to discuss motherhood as resistance, or Black motherhood in the Trump era. Stay tuned. So before I begin, I want to offer a few, I'm not sure if I should call them disclaimers or if I should call them encouragements. I'm not really certain what what word to use, but I want to say them anyway, because I feel like that I I need to say these things before I actually say what I'm wanting to say. The first is to non-parents, and I hope that people who aren't parents will listen to this episode and that you'll be able to get something out of my experience, that you'll be able to whether it's learn something, whether it's taking my, maybe my experience in some way will validate some of your lived experiences. I don't know, but I, but I really hope that you'll be able to listen and that, and, and hear me in what I'm saying, that I'm not saying that, that my life or my experiences or my marginalization is superior to any other black person or person of colors just because I'm a, I'm a parent, but I'm speaking from the perspective of being a parent. The next encouragement or disclaimer, I'm not, like I said, not really sure what to call it, but I'm going to say whatever it is, is to um, my friends who are in other marginalized groups. Um, What I'm talking about isn't necessarily intersectional. Um, You know, I am a, I am a cisgender, heterosexual, able-bodied Christian woman. And so my perspective as a person of color is coming from that that vein. And so everything that I say is coming from that perspective. And I recognize my own privilege in some of the things that I, that I might say. And so I just wanted to let you guys know that, that in speaking in a way that maybe isn't as inclusive or intersectional, I'm doing that because I'm sharing my lived experience as a, as a mother. And I don't feel comfortable really speaking into what could be other people's lived experience. And so I hope that you will take what I'm saying for for what it is and hopefully not read any exclusivity or hear any exclusivity rather in anything that I'm saying. So now that I've made my disclaimers, I want to get to the topic at hand. Motherhood as resistance, aka Black motherhood in the age of Donald Trump. So let me give you a little bit of context for my motherhood. My oldest was born in 2014, right before the Ferguson Uprising. She was she was an infant during the Ferguson Uprising. And then my youngest was born on Inauguration Day of 2017. So she is as old as the Trump presidency. And there's a whole bunch of shade that I want to throw right there, but I'm not going to throw shade. I'm going to exercise self-control and keep going. Yes, I'm exercising self-control right now. And so my motherhood has been forged in this context of Black resistance, of renewed Black resistance. I mean, Black resistance has always existed. We have always pushed back against oppression. We've always been, been a people that have, in one way or another, by, by some means or another, have always pushed back against our oppression. But I think that the, the time that we live in now is unique in that it's a lot like the civil rights era. I think that there have been kind of the, there's there's been this kind of um, compounding of our grievances. We we sort of have seen a lot of ideas about things that would improve Black people. We've seen we've seen some of these things come and go. We've seen some of these things some things be a little bit successful and then not be successful or be kind of co-opted or, or walked back a little bit. Um, one one fun fact, if you don't know, is that schools are more segregated now than they were before Brown versus Board of Education, which was to desegregate schools. So that's something that's really interesting. But we live in this in this really strange time where the race conversation has been thrust 
to the forefront of the national conversation. And for us, I mean, we, we know like race is always is always there. How white people have treated us has always is always been there. The topic of racism and our experiences, it's just it's just always been there for black folks. Like we just like we it's it's I don't want to call it the air that we breathe, but we just it's not something that we can get too far away from. But what's unique about right now is that it's something that is in the national consciousness in a way that I didn't see it. And so I, I grew up in a rural context. I grew up in a, in a rural white context. So the, the place where I where I uh, grew up, where I spent my childhood is over 90 percent white. And while there is a black community there and I was part of that part of that community, I grew up around a lot of white folks. And then the city that I ended up going to college in is very, very white. And I did not realize that at the time. I, I had no clue. And then I showed up here and it's like, okay, yeah, it, it, this is this place. Because it was a city. I mean, it's like, it was, it's one of one of the major cities in, in Missouri. And so I'm like, oh, wow, this, there, there are no black people here. Okay. And so I came up in this context where I think that that my experiences, I don't know how unique they are from other people's Black experience. I think that it would be worthwhile even sometime for me to explore that and to do a podcast on that because I think that rural Black people's experiences are are different. And I think that um, our experiences are often missing from the, from the narrative of, of Blackness, but that's a whole other different conversation. But as I have learned and grown in my life. And, and I, as an adult, I moved to the East Coast and I spent about half my adult life on the East Coast in, in a context that was more diverse than what I grew up. I don't know how, how diverse it is comparatively, but it's more diverse than the context that I grew up in for sure. And so that was a whole thing. But once again, that's another podcast episode. But as I, as I, I think that, that being where I've grown up and being in some of the places that I've, that I've been in, it gives me a unique perspective because I have been aware of how certain strata or certain demographics of white people have interacted with with things and I don't know if, if everybody really has that if everybody really has the opportunity to have that experience and so for me as a, as a black woman who has retained her culture who has been who has been um, who grew up very culturally aware who grew up knowing knowing my history I grew up in a, I grew up in a, in a black home and we watched the black shows we we anything that had to do with black folks black books, black whatever. My mom was very intentional in making sure that I had that. And that's something that I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful to her for that, because I think that in growing up, in raising a child in a context that is very white, it's very easy to, to sink back into white normativity, but I'll get to that in, in a moment. And so being in the position, growing up, being in some of the positions that, I, that I've been in, growing up in some of the places that, that, I, that I've been in, I see that that I, I grew up with white people who didn't realize that racism wasn't just over. A lot, I think a lot of people have the idea that Martin Luther King gave that I have a dream speech and then he got shot. And so somehow like he, he magically like laid down his life and it ended racism. And that is not how it worked. And so a lot of people have this this really like weird kind of mindset whenever whenever it comes um, to racism. And so for the Black Lives Matter movement, for for Colin Kaepernick, for some of these some of these movements that have that have sprung up to resist racism, that's a new one on a lot of white folks. I don't know if, if y'all aware of that, but that's a new one a new one on on a lot of them. And so because of that, because I mean you know white normativity. 
Like, it, you know, it, it doesn't exist unless white people say that it exists. That has thrust this conversation into the for, into the forefront in a way that, that I personally have not, have not seen or experienced. So then becoming a mother within that context, raising children as this resistance has, has been building for me has, I, I, I guess I don't know it any other way because that's where, that's where my motherhood has been, has been forged. But to raise children in in this context, it's an act of resistance because it is very easy. Let me tell y'all, it is so easy. I think to, it is so easy for somebody that, that grew up in, in whiteness or grew up rather, not in whiteness, but excuse me, grew up around whiteness, grew up around white people. I, I understand white culture and, and white normativity and I, and I get some of these things. It could be very easy to just be like, okay, hey, let me, let me just, ex- just assimilate and act like none of this is going on. I think that that's what a lot of people have done. I think, feel like a lot of us have retreated into the sunken place. And you know what? I, I don't begrudge anybody their, their means of survival. But for me as a mother, for me specifically as a black woman, as a black mother, raising children who are black biracial children, I realize that I have to take a posture of resistance lest this culture swallow my children whole. And that, I know that's, that's intense. That's an intense statement to make, but I'm just telling you the truth that there is so much in our culture that tries to erase blackness, that tries to come against blackness, that tries to diminish it, that tries to pathologize it, that tries to do all these things. And, you know, I, I, I love my people. I love my culture. I see the way that we are, that, that God has, has forged us, that God has, has framed us, that through our oppression, we have been able to come out with this culture that's just, that's influential and it's, and it's, it's banging. I mean, like, whenever I think about that, that we, that, that we have been given like a lot of kind of just like the turds and the junk of, of oppression and of life as have, have other groups that I'm black. And so I'm talking, I'm black and I'm talking to black folks. I'm speaking on black folks right now. And that's not to erase anybody else. But I see that we had all this stuff that happened to us and we somehow were able to make a culture out of it. And we were able to make a way of life and able to say we were like that, like black people literally made lemons into, into lemonade. We literally took like turds. We literally took this, this awful thing called slavery and oppression and we built an entire culture around it. And in fact, the rest of the culture even looks to our culture. They be taking our stuff. They be mopping stuff from us all the time. And we are, we are so just, just excellent and so influential. And I'm not trying to say that in a way that's like diminishing anybody else, but I'm just saying that, that we is, that black people are who we are. Like I I see that. And that's something that I want to pass on to my children. And yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's joy and pain that comes with, with being black. You know, we can have the rhythm, but we also got the blues. And so I, I recognize that I, I don't want to deprive my children of the experience of the understanding of, of being people who, who are black people, who are, who are brown people because they're, they're, they're biracial. So, you know, they're black, they're brown. However, however they, they form their, their identity. I want them to see the beauty in, in their culture. And so I, I think that it's so important to, to raise them to see that and to raise them to know that. But at the same time, all this junk that's going on, I don't want my kids to have, to have some of the same experiences as me. And so that's, that's why I'm out here because I don't want my kids to be living 
through some of the same things, that have to hear some of the same things that, that I heard growing up. And so I'm gonna unpack that a little bit more. I'm gonna get dig a little bit deeper into that in the next segment. segment, I gave you guys a little bit of context for my motherhood, told you about my kids, told you about some of my life experiences. And so in this segment, I want to continue the conversation about motherhood as resistance. So as I was saying in the last segment, I am very passionate about, I'm very, very um, set in the, in the idea that I need to raise my children it, to know their culture, to understand their culture, to understand who they are. It's, it, you could even go as far as to say that it's, a, that it's a conviction. And I think that in this era, in a time when we have events like Charlottesville, whenever we have where a black man can't protest about this country, like Colin Kaepernick, you know, he can't, he can't bend the knee during the national anthem be, without being policed um, and without, without people calling him into question, without, without, a whole controversy surrounding it. We live in this renewed time of conversation about race. And some people have called it the civil rights movement, a new civil rights movement or civil rights 2.0. But we are living, I believe, in a national moment. And we're living, I feel like that, that, you know, every day we are, we are walking through history that is going to be written down in history books and that will be studied for generations to come. And so as I've become more and more aware of that, I see the need to make sure that my children understand who they are, they understand where they come from. And so with that said, I also feel a need to make sure that this world is a better place than it was for me. And, you know, it's not that the world was, whatever I, think, whatever I say that, I mean, you know, some of my problems maybe are first world problems. I don't know. I don't know if racism really is a first world problem, but I think of all the people in the world who live existences that are that are much worse than than mine that that they don't have adequate food or housing or whatever and I'm and I'm well aware of that but I can't help but think of in in my sphere in my corner of of this of this universe some of the things that I've experienced as a black woman and and wanting better for my kids not wanting my kids to hear things like oh well you know you're pretty for a black girl or, or having to have conversations with, with people where you realize all of a sudden, you know, as a, as a kid, you realize, oh man, they're, I can't go over to my friend's house because their parents are prejudiced. Or dealing just with all the myriad litany of things that we've, that we've dealt with. I want my kids, as much as I want them, to, to know our culture and to know the things that our people have, have walked through and have struggled through. I don't want them to have to do the same thing. I don't want them to have to whenever they're my age, whenever whenever my girls are, are 33 years old, I don't want for them to have to be talking about the same things and fighting the same battles that I'm having to fight on today. And so a lot of what I'm doing, a lot of the reason why this podcast exists, a lot of the reason why I write, the reason why I do a lot of the things that I, that I do is because I'm trying to forge a better world for them. I'm trying to create a better world for them. And I realize that whenever my kids, like, I, I, you know, I, I realize that, that whenever they look back in history books, that they are going to see a time in which I was alive and they are going to wonder what I, what I did to make things better. They're going to read about Charlottesville. 
And I want them to, to know that I was there, not at Charlottesville, but I was, but I was there. I was alive then and I was working to, to make things better so that they, so that they hopefully didn't have to, didn't have to live through that. And then my grandchildren, this is the same thing. And my great grandchildren, because uh, I hope, I hope to leave a legacy if, if God, if God tarries. But with all of that said, I think that being a black mother, particularly, because I, I guess that's the only experience that I can really speak to is being, is being a black woman, is being a black mother. I see the, where it's daily, where it's, it, it's daily, if not hourly in some cases. I find myself looking at, you know, I find myself when my kids watch cartoons, looking at who who's represented and how they're represented. And there's some things that, that I don't allow my kids to watch because I don't like the lack of representation. Or if there is representation, and it's not just even race representation, but also gender, there are some things that I'm like, well, you know, I don't want to watch that because I don't want my, my children to have those ideas of, of what it means um, to be to be feminine and, and to be and to be a woman or to be to be a girl. I don't I don't want them um, to, to have some of those ideas. But it's it's you know looking at 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 what books we we bring into the house. Um, my and my preschoolers, my my four year old preschool, we actually had had a little bit of of an incident where she was asked to draw a portrait of me, and she drew that port she colored in that portrait of me with white skin. And so whenever I asked her about it, she was under the impression that that was what she was supposed to do. And so we went to the preschool and we had a hard conversation with with the teachers and with the administration there. And we've been pushing them um, to make some changes to how they ta- how they speak to how to color people and, and that type of stuff. And so we've had to have um, some difficult conversations, and I wasn't prepared for that. I thought in preschool, preschool, like you know, certainly, like I mean, white normativity is everywhere. But but my goodness, like certainly, I'm not going to have to go to my to my preschoolers' school and and deal with this. But lo and behold, I did. And my youngest um, has started preschool too. Has started. I mean, I guess it's preschool as, as much as a two year old can go to preschool. But these are the types of things that I think about. I think about. Um, because especially since, you know, I ended up, uh, I lived on the East Coast for a while, and then um, circumstances, we ended up moving back to Missouri, and ended up moving back to this community that is very, very white. And I mean, I, I like the community is insofar as there are people here that I very much value and very much care about. But I realize that as I'm raising my children here, there's a lot of questions I've had to, that I've had to ask myself, and a lot of things that I've that I've had to that I've had to think about. I've had to think about, um, you know, the, the school that we that my my oldest will start kindergarten at next year. Um, it's fair. It's fairly diverse. It's a, it's a Title One school, and it's and it's fairly diverse, especially for this city, especially for this for this area. It's it's very diverse. But I've had to I've had to think about um, the conversations and stuff that that I that I'm going to have to have with teachers and with and with classmates and with parents. And even as I think about that, recently in the news in my city, there was a middle school kid, an eighth grader at a middle school here, who was a black kid. And he, um, I'm guessing on the middle school, probably very much a minority. But there was another white student who photoshopped his picture on, um, it's like, you know, one of those old kind of portraits, written, uh, drawn portraits of slaves. He photoshopped this kid's face, this black kid's face on these old slave portraits of them being like like chained or something like that and then he photoshopped the principal's um head onto the, the print the white principal's face 
onto this um, onto this picture, onto this portrait of of slaves being being held in chains, and this administration pretty much did nothing about it. Um, they said that they took action, but the kid was still at school. Um, the black kid still has to interact with this with this child in class. And the other thing that I that I forgot to add to that story is that the white child posted those pictures of him on Instagram. And then also just recently, a substitute teacher at another middle school in town asked, like, asked some black children, some black uh, teenagers, I think it was also an eighth grade class that they were subbing in, said something about like, like, oh, you know, I should shoot you or something or something like that. And another student, and I'm assuming that it was a white student, so good on that white student who, who, who it was likely a white student because it wasn't, it wasn't any of the boys that it was said to. Um, that reported it, but it was another student, and I'm assuming that they're white. Maybe they, maybe they weren't, um, but they actually like left class and went and reported it to the principal. So, so, so good for that person for doing like for doing the right thing. But they, but they did that. But that's something that 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 happened, and that's something that I have to think about as a mother, and I have to train my children to know that these are the things that people can't say to you. These are the words that people can't use around you. You know what? Like I said, my my oldest is going to kindergarten next year. I I've already been been vigilant in in looking around at at, at people at at her preschool, looking around at, at parents and looking and you know, seeing like like are there are there are there certain political stickers on their on their cars. I have a friend actually whose daughter attends whose whose black daughter um, attends a Christian school, a, attends a private Christian school. And they, there's a person, there's a, there's a family there that has a Confederate flag on their car and a lot of Confederate stuff on, on their car for, for that matter. And so there's, there's just, it, it's a, it's a lot. And so it's, that's a lot. That's the, that's the culture that, um, I, am in and I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking a lot about where I want to raise my children and and praying through if we need to make changes and, and if so, what changes we need to make. But that is, and I realize that that might not be everybody's experience and the, and the culture that everybody, that, that maybe you're not having to deal with, with some of those things, or maybe you're even having to deal with, with worse. But I recognize that my resistance to racism, my resistance to the white normativity in this area, the white supremacy, the, the racism, my resistance is by raising strong black children. And so I want to get to that and, and talk about that a little bit more in the next segment. Welcome back. I've been talking about motherhood as resistance, aka black motherhood in the age of Donald Trump. And so I'm going to continue that conversation on. So I think that it's really important for black mothers, for black parents, I'm, I'm speaking mostly to mothers because I because I am one. And so I can speak to that experience, I think more and more clearly. 
But I realize that it is so important for us to raise our children with an understanding of who we are, of our culture, of our history, of what it means to be a Black person. I think that it is critical that we do that because I really believe that that um, the respectability politics, that, that white normativity, that white supremacy really is out there and wants to swallow our children whole. It wants to create this this sense of identity in, in our children that that their culture that their language that their that their ways are somehow inferior and what I've realized and I'm not criticizing previous generations because I understand that respectability politics that that there, that there are certain things there are certain adaptations that black people have had to make throughout the years simply to survive and so I don't want to criticize anybody's means of survival I know that there are people even today who we adopt certain things because we just want to survive. We just don't, we just don't want to die. We just, you know, we, we want to be able to exist. But I really feel like that for us to push back against racism, for us to, to, to resist it, I, I really feel like that we're, that we're at that point now. I think that playing ball with white people, that, that saying, okay, yeah, we're going to, we're going to assimilate, assimilate to your culture. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to try to talk like you. We're going to try to dress like you. We're going to, we're going to try to understand your culture and move to the same places that you live and whatever. I think that, that a lot of us have tried to do, have tried to do that and it's not gotten us anything. I mean, we see, you know, LeBron James is, is a, a multimillionaire and somebody still spray painted the N-word on his house. Um, Oprah, who is like the richest woman, I think in the world, but she's, she's definitely the richest woman in the United States. She went to a store, it's been, it's been probably about a decade ago now, but she went to Harrods in 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 uh, London, I think it was, and she tried to buy a bag, and the person she told the person told Oprah Winfrey that they didn't think that she could afford this bag, and that's Oprah Winfrey, and they didn't even realize who Oprah Winfrey was. But anyway, so it doesn't matter how much money that you that you that you have. I mean, Henry Louis Gates, who was who um, was a, a professor at Harvard, tried to get into his own house and had the cops called on him by his own neighbors. And so we, we can't escape this. Any, all, any level of education, any level of, of financial stability or financial, financial um, abundance that we could experience, it doesn't exempt us from white people's racism. And so it's just, it's my opinion that instead of trying to sink back and seep back into white normativity, and I know that it feels comfortable, it's really something that, at least in my mindset, because I came from a rural context, I understand white people. I, I've been in contexts with white people, so I kind of understand their ways a little bit. I'm married to a white man. And so I understand white people and understand their ways a little bit. And, and, and I, know, I, I know I could play the game if I wanted to play the game. Um, I don't want to play the game, but if I did, I could. And I know how easy that is, that that, that, that feels like a viable alternative. There's some plan, sometimes I'm just like, yeah, let me, let me just sink back into the sunken place. I don't, I don't ever do, but there's sometimes, sometimes I'm like, you know what? My life would be so much easier if I sunk back into this, into this here sunken place and, and didn't always try to bring my blackness with me wherever, wherever I go. But you still experience discrimination. And sometimes the discrimination or the ignorance or whatever kind of comes in the form of, oh, well, you're not like one of those. Oh, well, you're not like this. Or you're not like that. You're not like whatever. But there's so much dehumanization that we can experience even whenever we do try to assimilate. And so I am 
of the opinion that it is important for us to raise strong black children. And when I say that, I want to be sure to to say that there's no one way to be black. Whenever I talk about our culture, black culture isn't monolithic. There's there's a lot of different ways to be black. So please hear me whenever I say to, to whenever we're raising strong black children and to raise your children in the in the culture. I'm not saying that that that, that includes any one cultural expression or any set of cultural expressions or, or ways of raising your children. Basically, what I'm saying is that those of us who are raising black children or who are raising biracial children who, who are black or multiracial children who are, who are black, I think that it's important for us to forge a strong black identity in our children. Because once we forge a strong, identity, a strong sense of identity in our children, that is something that cannot be taken away. It's sort of like in Black Panther, that scene in Black Panther, whenever T'Challa is fighting M'Baku. And they're and they're up there on that cliff, and T'Challa is is about to die. He's about to get sleep, and then and then um, the the queen yells out, "Tell them who you are!" And he just starts like I'm about to start crying talking about, it, but he but then he starts telling him who who he is, and that and he was able to to stand up. And of course, you know that, that the, the analogy only goes so far because you know, it was another black man, it was another person who who it was another Wakandan who was doing this. But the but the point is is that he was able to resist. And I think it's funny too that that you know the Jabari that they that they painted themselves white in that scene and that telling him telling him who he was. You're you're saying that to a to a person who had painted themselves white. But anyway, I might be that I might be getting a little too deep there, fam. But I think that that is what we have to be able to do for our children. That as black mothers, we got to be like Queen Ramonda. We got to be like, tell them who you are. And so that doesn't, that doesn't mean that, that we, that we present our blackness all in the same way. That doesn't mean, I mean, you know, blackness, y'all should know. I mean, we, we ain't a monolith. Um, black, black Southern culture is different than black Northern culture. I'm a Midwesterner. I am somebody who grew up in a rural context. And so my culture, my, my blackness, my, 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 my slang, my whatever is different than, than some of the people that I know who are in the South or some of the people who I know who are from, from the East or from, or from further up North. And so we, we have all these beautiful cultures within blackness. So whatever your black culture is, whatever your blackness looks like, for me, it's not about saying that we got to chop, that we got to churn out black children that all think the same, all talk the same, all wear the same clothing, all have all of the same cultural touch points. But I think that our culture is so beautiful and our culture is so important to not just who we are, but it's so important to this nation that the best piece of resistance, the best act of resistance that we can do as black mothers, as black parents, as black people who are in a black community, who are who are raising children, who identify as black, uh, who identify whether in whole or in part, but they identify as black. One of the best legacies that we can give our children is our history and, and our culture and help, have, helping them to understand our ways of, of, of being and for them to have a, a joy in their blackness, because that's what's gotten us through. I mean, if you think about it, all this stuff that we've had to endure over the centuries just for looking the way that we do, there's a, there has to be a joy. There, there is a joy. There, there, there has to be something that was, that was preserved 
preserving us. That just didn't keep us all just from being like, you know, we just going to all just, just jump off this boat. We just all going to, we just all going to hang ourselves. We're just all just going to, we just, we just don't even want to be here. There, there's something to being black. There's something to our, our culture and, and who we are as a people. And so I think that one of the ways that we stand up as a people is to teach our children our culture. And you know, I firmly believe that resistance protects our existence. Combing the Roots is powered by The Witness, a Black Christian collective. Special thanks to executive producers Tyler Burns and Bo York. Catch up with what I'm doing on these internet streets by visiting AllieHenny.com. There you'll be able to connect to my Twitter feed, my Instagram, and my Facebook writers page. I'm your host, Allie Henny. Peace.